listening to Buggy Talk, where some of your favorite authors, friends, and guests explore the simpler side of life. Here's your host, Amish fiction author, Tracy Fertikowski. Hey there, welcome to another episode of Buggy Talk. I'm your host, Tracy Fredikowski, and this is podcast episode 18. Each week, I bring you the story behind the stories along with the storytellers. For this week's episode, we have Serena Miller. Serena is best known for her novels made into movies, two of them, Love Finds You in Sugar Creek and Uncommon Grace. Since then, she has published many more books and has won numerous awards, including the Romance Writers of America Reader Award for The Measure of Katie Calloway and American Christian Fiction Writers Carol Award for A Promise to Love and her Under a Blackberry Moon was a finalist in the Christie Awards. That's quite a bio, Serena. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. I know that we have a lot of things to talk about today. The main thing is your contribution to the Amish Christmas Miracles Collection. But before we dig into that, I really like to take our listeners behind the scenes of, our, of their favorite authors. But you are pretty special because you're the first author I've interviewed that's actually had one of her books made into, the, into a movie. So I can only imagine that our listeners want to hear more about that. So tell me, when your books were made into a movie, did you get to go and visit the movie set? Well, that's a bit of a story. I did not know that Love Finds You in Sugar Creek was going to be made into a movie. It had actually been in pre-production for a year before I even found out about it. And then I found out about it because a librarian in the uh, Sugar Creek area, I think it was the one from New Philadelphia, called me and said, would you come up and do a book signing uh, with your book that's, you know, being made into a movie up here in the Sugar Creek area? <clears throat> and I said, what book? And what are you talking about? And uh, <clears throat> the thing of it is, is, uh, you know, when you're, when you're a writer, you'll sign any kind of contract uh, initially. That was my first book. And I remember when my, when my agent told me, you know, what was in the contract and she mentioned, you know, there's always a, place in there where they talk about movies and I remember just laughing I said oh I don't care what you put in there I'm never going to have a movie and um, you know God says never say never I think <laughs> because the next thing I knew this was being done so <clears throat> my next thought was well it can't be anything important you know it's probably I don't know a couple guys in ponytails and Birkenstocks with a rented camera that's going yeah. to be doing something but then um I started looking about it on the internet and I found out that Kelly McGillis had just uh, been signed to play the part of Bertha. And I tell you, Tracy, that took me to my knees. Uh, literally did. took me to my oh. knees. I started sobbing. I could not believe that someone of that caliber, you know, I mean, she's the woman, for those listeners who don't realize, she's the woman who played the part of um, I can't remember the name now. I think it was Rachel, but uh, on Witness, you know, and I had just admired, you know, that actress so much for her portrayal of the Amish. Um, I knew that Kelly had even gone and stayed with an Amish woman uh, in order to learn the accent, you know, learn how to pronounce the words uh, before Witness. And so at that point, I knew this was a real movie. It was a Hollywood movie. And so I did a little bit more research. I ended up calling 
motion pictures in Hollywood talking to a receptionist and saying, does anyone want to talk to me? I'm the author of Love Find Gin Sugar Creek. And um, the producer, George Shamia, got on the phone with me and he's like, yes, we want to talk to you. And by the way, you come up on, come up to Sugar Creek. They were already setting up to do the filming there. And he said, the uh, director and I want to talk with you. We're going to take you around, show you where everything is. What had happened, it was no one's fault. Uh, Guidepost, who owned my book at that time, had never really done, you know, movies before. They, they, they thought the movie company was going to contact me. The movie people thought that Guidepost was going to contact me. And so it was a little bit of a comedy of errors, but it worked out well for me because I didn't have time to, you know, fall apart in nerves or anything. I immediately got my car, went up there and got to set and talk with these two gentlemen. And from that point on, uh, for the next three weeks as they filmed, I have to say it was, uh, it was a journey of sheer joy because the scriptwriter that they had chosen had actually used a lot of my dialogue in the movie. I was really happy with the script. I thought that it, it stuck to the plot of the movie and the, the heart of the movie so well. In fact, when I met script writer who was from Hollywood, um, I gave him a hug because I was so grateful that he had done such a beautiful job with my book. And um, from that point on, I got to watch everything. I was, I was in the set. George was so funny. He wanted me to play a part. So if you ever see the movie, I think it's airing on Pure Flex these days. If you ever see the movie, um, one of the first uh, scenes is Joe, the hero, buying something at a, at a food store. And I'm the woman who's behind the counter trying to, you know, take his money. And I had four, I had four words to say, which was right back there because his little boy needed to go to the bathroom and I had to point and say right back there and then give him change. And let me tell you, um, there's a reason that I write because <laughs> I should never be behind in front of a camera. <laughs> camera. I, I think it took 17 takes. 17 takes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Now with I everyone have... with every well, I had go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say I have seen the movie and I didn't recognize you in any of the scenes, but now I will go back, watch <laughs> I will look for it. I will look I will watch it again and look for you this time. <laughs> but 17 well, times. Oh my goodness. But when Oh my goodness. Well, and I could see George just pacing around grinning at me because he thinks it's hilarious, you know, for the author. I think the author is usually in, in his movies, but it was, again, it was just a, it was a joy. I had never realized how hard actors jobs are. And I know there was, um, I was talking to a Tom, Everett Scott, who was, of course, the hero in the book, and I admired him as an actor, too. And he was standing across the counter from me going, you can do this, Serena, just take a deep breath. Now you can. And the little boy, Bobby, he was like six years old, and he's saying, you can do this, Mrs. Miller, you can do this. So anyway, I had, I had a real cheerleading uh, section, but later uh, we were doing the baseball scene, and Tom uh, was sitting there in the stands, and I was sitting there with him and I said, you know, I said, I had no idea how hard the, the job is until I was actually in front of the camera. And he said, Serena, he said, I wish that other viewers had your, 
had experienced what you did, he said, maybe they wouldn't be so hard on us all the time. And I thought that was such a, I don't know, that just grabbed my heart because I thought these are just people. And as I watched the crew work so hard to, to make such a beautiful, I mean, I felt like that movie was just jewel-like uh, because of the beautiful photography and everything that they used. And I didn't realize how much heart goes into some of these movies. These people are truly trying to make a gift for people. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Now, one of the, um, I can't remember what his title was, but I remember a man by the name of Steve Campanella, who was, who had brought a lot of the crew there and stuff. Um, I found out, and since this is a you know, Christian podcast, I, I think it's okay to talk about this. Uh, I began to really admire him, uh, the way he dealt with the crew, uh, his gentleness with everyone, and yet his firmness too. And I found out later that he was a Christian, and um, I watched him pace around the set so many times, and I found out later that he was praying the whole time for the set and for the actors. And of course, watching Kelly McGillis, um, one, of the things, one of the things she did is she teaches at a school in North Carolina, and um she a lot of the actors were not as you know they had not done as much acting as she did she worked to try to get all the accents correctly and um you know she was able to so anyway it was uh, the other thing that was so much fun about that movie was we did it on a shoestring uh that movie cost seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars which is nothing for a movie and um, I think it's really amazing. And, you know, for the producers and the directors and all that, we did win the Epiphany, the Templeton Epiphany Award for, uh, I think it was for, 19, or for 2013, for the best family-friendly movie, family and faith movie. And uh, that's like 100,000, you know, prize that they, that they won. And it was a very big deal, but to have done that, on such a small budget. But one of the ways we were able to do that is the village of Sugar Creek got so involved. And when you look at that movie and you see the fire, you know, the firemen putting out the fire, those are real firemen. You know, when you see the cops, those are real cops. Uh, everybody, you know, all the extras, they just, we just had the biggest time. And uh, for the baseball scene, I was given permission to have a bunch of my people come. It's about a three and a half hour drive. And my husband's church, we let them know that there was going to be a baseball scene. And if they wanted to be in the movie, they could come. And all they came up in droves and they had the best time. And they, they just loved to freeze frame and point out, you know, that they were there in the movie. But so that and then the other thing was just hearing there were a couple times when I was in tears because the, the words that I had written were so much sounded so much more beautiful in the in the mouths of of good actors and actresses than what they had even sounded in my head when I was writing it and the fact that the Lord would allow me to um, be able to experience that you know to hear these words of affirmation being spoken on the screen um, it was like well you know my life is done now I have had the best thing ever um, now, the other thing, uh, of course, I did have my book, Uncommon Grace, was also turned into a, home, it was turned into a Hallmark movie. 
when that was being filmed, and it was by the same company, same producer and all that, but when that was being filmed, my husband was um, actually dying. He was in hospice. And that was, he had had cancer for a long time. And, you know, we were towards the end of his life. And so I had basically nothing to do with that movie. I was able to go to the premiere a few months later, but uh, I thought they did a very good job, but I didn't get to have the um, more intimate um, experience with them. What a once in a lifetime opportunity. And then to have it twice in a lifetime, even though you didn't get to be involved with the oh, second yeah. movie. I mean, that is, the, I can only imagine it's the ultimate author's dream to have two of her novels turned into a movie. So I have to ask, would you do it again if, if you were presented with the opportunity? Well, actually I'm am, uh, going to, Lord willing, be able to do it again. The uh, wonderful director of Sugar Creek um, had a book of, well, I have a series of books called Mariah's Lighthouse that he read and he took to Hallmark and I've signed an option agreement with, um, with Hallmark for um, actually it'll this, I think the movie will be titled Mariah's Lighthouse and it will be filmed in Canada uh, somewhere. Now, anybody who knows movies know that an option agreement doesn't guarantee that the movie is going to be made. But uh, the only thing holding this one back is COVID. And they've already hired the script writers. The script writers are working on it. And they're sending me, uh, you know, copies of the script uh, so that I can, you know, I mean, it's not like I have veto power, but they do seem to appreciate some feedback. And so far, all I've been able to say is, I really like what you guys are doing. So hopefully, once COVID, you know, calms down, uh, we'll be filming, I think it's Newfoundland, maybe, and then Upper Ontario, two different places, because the movie itself is um, set in Canada. It's actually set on an island called Manitoulin Island. And um, I absolutely plan on going and staying the whole time. I just can't wait. I want to be able to experience that again. And the other thing that I want to go for is because of this, uh, when I was on the set of Love Find You in Sugar Creek, uh, the makeup artist was a woman about my age and she, you know, so many of the people on the movie were so very young. And um, she came to me, she was a Christian and she came to me later and she said, uh, she said, I want you to know something. She said, we were dreading you coming. She said, we found out that the author was going to be there. And she said, we all dreaded it. We groaned because she said we had experienced other authors who stomped around and didn't like things and, you know, made everybody miserable. And she said, from the time you arrived on the set, she said, all you've done is encourage us. And, and uh, there was this one moment when George motioned for me to come over and, and look into the camera and I had never seen the camera. I saw things being filmed, but I had never seen what, what actually came through the camera. And he put the earphones on me and he said, take a look at this. And it was a scene where Joe and Rachel are having that picnic by the pond. Mm -hmm. And it was suddenly I saw the incredible beauty of that scene and it just overwhelmed me. And I started crying. And um, she told me, she came running with a, with a Kleenex when the uh, scene was finished. And she said, Serena, she said the word went through everybody that the author was crying from the beauty of it. 
and even Sarah Lancaster, she heard that I was over there crying. <laughs> she came over and she just held me for a while while I stopped. And I just kept saying, this is so beautiful. This is so beautiful. And if you've seen this scene, you know what I'm talking about. But um, the makeup artist said, we needed this. And she said, having an author uh, who tells us what a good job we're doing and who's happy about what we're doing. She said, it's, it's raised the morale and it's made all the difference. Now I'm not going to give myself credit for that. I, I didn't know what I was doing. It was just, I was so incredibly grateful that I was getting to experience this. And uh, I'm so incredibly grateful that I got to encourage some of those young people that were working on this movie. And I'm really hoping to be able to um, at least be able to do some of that when in Canada when I go I want to be able to just just brag on people you know it's just so neat to be able to be there and I'm I'm not young by far I'm not young so I get to be the grandma who's walking around telling people they're doing a good job oh again that is just a beautiful experience to have a once in a lifetime experience and you know God probably put you on that set because those actors and those employees of that movie have, or that movie company they needed somebody to encourage them you know so your presence there had to have been remarkable and I can only imagine how excited you are to go to Canada for your for your next movie um, yeah. it is just wonderful it's wonderful so thank you again for explaining all of that to us. You know, somebody that has not ever been to a movie set, I loved listening to how it felt and, and seemed in, in your eyes. So thank you again. So that takes us right into your contribution to the Amish Christmas Miracles Project that um, we're doing. Tell me, what inspired you to go ahead and contribute to this project? I think it was the um, the people that, you know, the other writers. I admire so many of them. I had, I've not read their books, others I have. And I, I just love being part of a thing like this. I was actually in the group uh, a Summer of Suspense this past summer and enjoyed that so much. There's a camaraderie that developed between us. Um, for instance, you and I are chatting now mm -hmm. and I, we probably wouldn't have had a chance to do that otherwise. But yeah, that's, that's the reason. And of course, it's a way to reach more readers. And that's what we're all about also. It is, it is. So tell us a little bit about your story. You know, one of the things um, I enjoy, first of all, when I started writing Amish, and I, <laughs> the reason I did was my agent called me one day. She had not been able to sell my books yet. I had three Christian suspenses and she had finally taken me on and she said, you know, I can't sell these suspenses, but she said, there's an editor that likes your writing and asked that since your name is, is Miller and you live in Ohio, do you know any Amish people? Cause she's looking for an Amish author. By that time I had been working for 10 years trying to get published by a traditional publisher. And I would have probably written about uh, aliens <laughs> you know, by that, <laughs> that time. Point, yeah. And I said, you know, I don't know any Amish people, but I will go, I, I will go find some, you know? So anyway, I went to, again, you know, we were only three and a half hours away from the Holmes County area. And I went up, I stayed at a bed and breakfast and um, the woman who owned it was a Christian. She also drove for the Amish. She had so many connections she went to some of her Amish friends and said, this woman's going to be writing um, a book. Will you spend time with her? They invited me to dinner and I got to 
spend time with them. They've basically taken me in. When I go up, I stay with them. I've gotten to experience the whole no electricity, you know, Amish experience. They're old order Amish and they've been amazing. But the thing that uh, I knew some about the Amish, but the thing that surprised me, I think, was the total interaction there is between the Amish and the English. I was not expecting that, not only business-wise, but they're, they're neighbors to one another. They, um, there's family members who chose not to become Amish that still are in and out of their homes. They're, you know, in my case, the first book I wrote was about Rachel, who's a, who's a police officer, but her three aunts are older Amish. So a lot of my stories do have to do with the interaction between the English and the Amish. And so I went ahead and stayed with that same theme here. So this story, A Stranger for Christmas, involves a woman by the name of Amy who lives in Manhattan. She's a total New York City girl, and she's a ghostwriter. She does other people's autobiographies and such. And so she, her mother, Desiree, is an actress who has been married multiple times and turns out that one of Amy's stepfathers that she had when she was a little girl, her very favorite one, um, has died and has left her a farm and an antique store in Sugar Creek, Ohio. And so you have this totally city girl going to this totally rural situation. And I wanted to write, I'm, I'm writing, now. I'm, this is actually going to be a series that I'm taught, calling The Secrets of Sugar Creek. And this is the first installment in it. And I wanted to do it uh, through her eyes, you know, just someone who's totally alien to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But of course, there is a farm manager who is named, his name is Lucas Hirschberger, and he's a widower, and he's old order Amish. And of course, you know, there's sparks that fly. And he's, um, I, he's, he's on the outs with his bishop because he's, you know, not doing everything the bishop thinks he should do. And so anyway, that's the premise of the two of them together. But um, there's going to be some things happening in the book that I don't want to talk about, that there is a stranger that shows up. And of course, one of the problems is this New York City girl has inherited this 200 acre farm in the middle of the Sugar Creek area. And that farmland up there is like gold. I mean, the the real estate prices in that area are crazy. And so it's worth a lot of money. And her stepfather and Lucas had been turning this into an organic farm. Uh, Lucas doesn't own the property, but he's put five years of his life into, into the land. And he's figuring that with this new person actually inheriting it, you know, he's upset with himself because he allowed himself to put so much time and effort into um, a piece of property that he doesn't own and can never own because it's almost impossible for a farmer to make enough money to actually purchase farmland up there anymore. So you mentioned that you'd like for me to read um, a little bit. And so I'm going to, I'm going to read, I'm going to read the chapter that starts in Lucas's uh, point of view. Okay. This is right. This is right after uh, Rick has died, and he's seen this, you know, very slick, polished-looking woman, who's the heir of this property, show up. Perfect. Go ahead. Lucas Hirschberger, an old order Amish farmer, 
stared out his window at the rolling farmland. It was fertile soil, and he'd made it even more so through the years. So many loads of manure spread over the rolling fields, such careful rotation of crops with his patient plow horses. The only way a small farmer could compete against agribusinesses was to provide specialty products of a higher quality than the growers who drenched their property with pesticides and artificial chemicals. That had been his dream and it had also been Rick's. He had slowly been building a reputation for superb organic fruits and vegetables. Organic farming involved an almost unfathomable amount of work, at least to those who had never done it. He loved working with healthy, life-giving soil. His connection to the earth went deep, and yet, doom cough, he said, angry that he had put so much time, effort, and sweat into a place he did not own. Rick had offered him the job as farm manager and the use of the Dottie house. After watching Lucas pour everything he had into a frantic attempt to overcome his wife's final illness, it was not the Amish thing to do, of course. The Amish people in general disapproved of going to heroic efforts to hang on to life. As one minister said, if I truly believe what I say I believe, why impoverish my family for the sake of a few more months? But to Lucas, the extra two years they had together, thanks to new cancer treatments, had been worth every penny. But now he didn't know what to expect. There was a good chance that with Rick's death, he just lost his home and his livelihood. It would break his heart to leave this place, but he should probably get ready to move. That was perfect. You painted a beautiful picture. I want to hear more about Lucas. So I have to ask you, if this book was made into a movie, who would be its star? <laughs> you know, I, I've been trying to think about that. And, I, you know, I'm not sure that I'm up on all the new you know, new young actors. But in my mind, when I think of any of my books being turned into a movie, I always go back to witness, you know, the young Harrison Ford and the young Kelly McGillis. I just don't think you could do any better than that. No, you could not. They would be perfect. They would be perfect. And I can picture Lucas as Harrison Ford. So that would be perfect. So tell us a little oh, bit yes. about, yeah, I know it. Um, Harrison Ford is one of my favorite actors anyway, so <laughs> that would be perfect. So let's go ahead and talk about some of your current projects. Um, I need to know if Sugar Creek is always your inspiration place. It, I debated what to do about that. A lot of the Amish authors have explored different areas, but I finally made the decision that since I do have so many connections there and you know the roots that I have established over the 10 years have gone so deep I'm going to continue to stay there because I, I, maybe it's selfish of me but I've created this world in Sugar Creek that has become so real to me that the characters really do feel I like they're very real people and I want to go visit them again and so I was I, I just finished um book four of the um, love's journey in sugar creek which is you know we have love finds you in sugar creek and then there's this is the fourth book in that series but uh when jennifer asked me to or do this do this project i got an idea of basically kind of a cozy mystery series and that i'm calling the secrets of sugar creek only instead of a murder mystery it's going to be 
the um, secrets that happen sometimes in a village that you know I'm going to bring that out I have an antique shop there's I've got about 10 10 books that I've already written the <clears throat> the synopsis for that I want to do they're going to be shorter books but I will also bring characters from my other Sugar Creek books into it because I think readers just like to see how people are doing you know, in this first book, I bring Cassie Reynolds in, who is a major character in Love Rekindled, and she's an attorney in Love Rekindled. Well, she's the attorney that Rick used, you know, to write his will of, and little things like that. I don't know that anyone else has done that, but it's, it's feeling good to me. It's feeling right. I'm already working on story number two, uh, which is going to involve a runaway Amish father, a man that just for reasons that will be revealed later, it's going to disappear. And uh, that's very unusual. Most Amish men are very <clears throat> dependable. But, um, you know, and there will be other people from the Sugar Creek world that I've created that I'll be bringing into it. So maybe it's just my own selfish pleasure, but I think it'll be, I think it'll be enjoyable for the readers I, as well. I think there it should, is. there should, I'm sorry, there should be about, uh, I'm planning 10 of those um, novellas. They're, you know, around 20,000 words, so they're novellas. Well, I think it's a wonderful idea. I don't know if you know anything about me, but I wrote a series called The Secrets of Willow Springs, where I did the exact same oh. thing, where I, you know, took oh. a series of three stories, and they told, you know, the, the lives of each one of the main characters, and it was secrets that that were revealed to them. But I do the same thing. I have a fictitious town called Willow Springs in Northwestern mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. And mm -hmm. I love visiting there because the characters really do come to life when you continue storylines in the same area of the country you've written about. And I believe that our readers enjoy that because they get to know these people and it feels like they're visiting old friends. So I can only imagine um, more readers are apt to enjoy books that they can revisit again and again. So I think you're right I, on I, I, <clears throat> I hope so. The mayor, Sugar Creek, told me once that, um, well, one other thing that was nice about the movie was Sugar Creek is kind of off the beaten path a little bit. It's not quite as noticeable as Berlin, mm -hmm. for instance, or Millersburg. And he said that they had had a, had a meeting, you know, the leaders of that little village trying to think of some way to bring, um, to bring business, you know, and to bring tourists there. And he said they were trying to come think of something. And then suddenly this movie showed up <clears throat> and he said it, it um, increased about threefold the, the, for the business people, um, the tourism people actually go there because of the books, because of the, of the movie. And he said one day he was on the sidewalk, he met a, you know, a couple that uh, looked like tourists to him and he introduced himself. And they said that that morning, or they said that the night before they had watched Love Finds in Sugar Creek and they lived in Florida and they had said, I wonder if a place like that really exists anymore. And they were retired. And so they packed up their car and they drove straight to Sugar Creek. Oh my and goodness. they said, they said it does exist. They were so excited about it. And so you know, with people that are 
that into the characters and that into the town, it's going to be fun, I think, to continue it. And I try very hard to make sure that I'm not making anything up as far as, you know, the street names that I use are real street names. Um, the antique store <clears throat> that I'm describing in my book is actually on Main Street um, uh, of Sugar Creek. And it's not a, it's not a antique store. It's actually the museum that they have there. Um, I have a little restaurant that I talk about, Joe's Home Plate, and uh, that's actually Bags, you know, restaurant there in, in downtown Sugar Creek. And so I, you know, I try to, I try to use real street names and, you know, mention actual real, you know, businesses and things like that. And I don't know, I hope that that's fun for them. It's not any harder for me to do than make them up. Actually, it, it makes it a little easier for us because I did the same thing with the Willow Springs town. You know, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I refer to a restaurant and a coffee shop and, you know, uh, um, uh, the library. And when I, I have visited oh. all those places, so in my mind's eye, I can describe them in such detail because it's actually a real place. So it does work. And I think people who visit Sugar Creek and have watched your movie or read your books, they're going to say, oh, I bet that's the restaurant she's talking about. Or, you know, I bet that's the <laughs> antique store. So I think it, it, I think it brings a story more to life when people who visit the area can actually see what they're reading, just like that couple from Florida that drove all the way to Sugar Creek. So I said, I saw the wisdom in, in exactly what you're talking about uh, when I was hired by the original owner of the book was Summerside Press and they had started this series called Love Finds You In and they hired a lot of authors from different states to talk about well there's like about 50 Love Finds You books total and like for instance Love Finds You in Hershey Pennsylvania or Love Finds You in Treasure Island Florida it had to be real real people or real places and they wanted it as accurate as possible geographically and what I saw this particular series doing of all these other authors and I of Love Finds You In was if someone, it was kind of a travelogue in a way. If you wanted to visit Hershey, Pennsylvania, you could read Love Finds You In Hershey, Pennsylvania, right. and you would feel like you were in that area. And, and I, I just saw the wisdom of it, and I want to continue that. That particular series is no longer uh, being done. Um, guideposts are just that, and, you know, they're not, they're not a, getting any more authors for it. But um, I, I just saw it as a travelogue and I, I want all my books to have that feel to them. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Well, let's end with, is there anything you'd like to um, tell your readers or give them a message of any kind? Since I have been able to work with movie people, one of the things that's really been a shock to me is how many dedicated Christians there are that are trying to make a difference and one place in particular is a um, man by the name of Ted Bear, Dr. Ted Bear. He was actually uh, a son of two actors. He was raised, you know, he was a stage brat. And he was raised atheist and continued to be atheist until, as he told me, he said, a woman challenged me to read the Bible. And he said, the only way I can describe what happened was Jesus got a hold of me and he never stopped. Now, Ted at the time was a lawyer, <clears throat> and but he had, and he wasn't even living in Hollywood, but he and his wife, once they were converted, <clears throat> looked at the situation with the movies. This was 30 years ago, 
And the one thing that he knew was Hollywood, and he knew it well. They went out there, and they and their family have devoted 30 years trying to, for want of a better word, clean up some of the movies. And a lot of the faith and family-friendly movies that you see in Hollywood right now are because of the work of his family. Now, he has a uh, website called movieguide.com. And in it, he will let you know, you know, if you're wondering about whether to take your child to a certain movie or whatever, you can check on there and he will have, you know, what's in it, what, you know, isn't in it. And he, but the thing that he does is, and is that's so valuable is that he creates a um, booklet every year that he hands out to the heads of major studios. And in that booklet, he, he shows the money. As he told me, he said, Studio heads will make any kind of movie you want as long as it makes money. And he said, he said, I've been able to show over the past 30 years that faith and family friendly films are the ones that make the big money. Overall, that's true. And so the newer, some of the newer book, movies that have come out have been the culmination of his, him and his family's work. So I guess what I would like to say to my readers is don't despair about Hollywood because there's some, there's some faithful Christians out there, um, both in front of the camera and behind the camera that are doing their level best to bring something good. And they're, they need our prayers and they also need our votes. And, you know, people basically vote uh, for movies with their pocketbooks. You know, if you, if you go to the movies or if you download the movie or whatever, you know, that's sending a message to the, to Hollywood about what you want to do. But uh, so I guess that's one thing. It would be just a measure of hope that sometimes you get to feeling like things are just so awful. And there's a lot of, I mean, Satan's well and alive, but boy, they've got a lot of soldiers that are fighting hard. They sure do. And that is wonderful insight. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I like to finish up on a fun note. So I have a few questions I'm going to ask you. And then because this is a Christian podcast and we talk to Christian authors, I have to know if you could ask God one question, what would it be? <laughs> you know what? That is the one question you um, had prepared for me that has just stumped me. I've been thinking and thinking about it. And I can't think of one question that I have. The only thing I want to do is just say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've given me. Um, you know, how can you not live a life of gratitude after what he's given us? So I did, however, ask a friend who is actually an atheist. And I said, what would you ask God? If you could ask God anything, he said, I want to know if he's real, and if so, which God he is. And I'm like, okay, I'll pass that on. So <laughs> do you want to hear something funny? You know what my husband would ask? Why did you make fire ants? Do you know what a fire ant is? In oh, the fire South, ants. Fire ants. He absolutely buys fire ants. <laughs> oh, so that's well, You know what? I'm not from the South, but I went, I went, I went to visit my son and I sat down on the ground and I uh, learned what fire ants fire were. Ants were you yes. talk about ants in the pants. <laughs> yes, exactly. Absolutely. So uh, I'm, I'm with your husband for that. I'm like, I think I would prioritize snakes. Snakes? Snakes terrify me. <laughs> oh. And uh, I'd be like, Really, Lord, was that necessary? <laughs> well, he did because the serpent in the Bible was, you know, he, he created them for a reason. So, okay, next question. How many, mm -hmm. how many books do you own? 
Well, now, did you mean other people's books or my own books? Uh, uh, probably others. I managed books. to get the right. <laughs> well, the reason I'm laughing is because in order to get the rights back, I bought the rights back to my Love Lunch in Sugar Creek. And uh, so I had to buy out every book that they had. <laughs> and oh. so I've got hundreds <laughs> of uh, those books down there. As far as other people's books, I would say between me and my husband's library, uh, well over a thousand were readers. And I, I don't feel right unless I'm surrounded by books. I don't know about you, but it's like if a room or house doesn't have books, it's, uh, that's like one of the first things I want to get is a bookcase <laughs> and start surrounding myself with them. It's like surrounding yourself with good friends. Exactly, exactly. And my last question, do you have a motto that you live by and could you share it with us? Something that I've kept in my mind for ever since that I first read it. Of course, you know who Helen Keller was, very famous woman many, many years ago who was both blind and deaf and yet lived with such a spirit of abundance. Um, and she's quoted as saying, life is either an exciting adventure or it is nothing. And whenever I'm afraid and I have to go face something that, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about, I repeat that to myself. Life is either an exciting adventure or nothing. And I think, well, if Helen Keller could see life as an adventure, then I certainly can too. And so it's kind of helped me do some things that were way outside of my comfort zone. And yet I was grateful that I pushed myself to do them. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Serena, I just want to tell you um, again, this has been a pleasurable interview. Thank you so much for spending time with me. And I look forward to reading your story in the Amish Christmas Miracles collection, along with your new projects. And that wraps up this week's episode. You can find all the episodes of Buggy Talk podcast on your favorite podcasting channel, or you can find the links at my website at tracyfredikowski.com. Next week, we'll have Amy Clipson on board to tell us about her latest projects. So we'll see you next week on the Buggy Talk podcast. <laughs>